Welcome to the Superpowers for Good Show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Today's guest, Steve Bambro, is the co-CEO and founder of Aptera, a startup that will produce hyper-efficient EVs powered by the sun. He will also share insights about his superpower, depriving himself of comforts as long as required to finish the job. Steve, I, I, I couldn't be more thrilled to have you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for making time for us. I see you're building my car right in back of you. Yes, got your name right on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's one of your beta models, isn't it? That's, that you're no, building this, right behind us? This is an alpha. This is one of the oh, three alphas. Oh, one of the three alphas. Okay. Yep. Uh, so let's take a step back for the sake of the audience. Uh, tell us about the vision for what the Aptera will be. Aptera is about, it's about using the least amount of energy to go from point A to point B. And when you start thinking about that, especially as an engineer, you know, you, you go down a path that invariably leads you to something that would look like an Aptera. There's no other way to do it. And so, uh, being an electrical engineer, a former electrical engineer myself, a recovering electrical engineer, however you think <laughs> of it, um, you know, we are we are given to just think about efficiency and everything. And that's something that uh, even from my very first job as a teenager at McDonald's, you know, you begin thinking about efficiency. You're making a thousand hamburgers, not one hamburger. And so your economy of movement and things like this, it's something that lends itself into engineering. So yeah, the Aptera is always going to be about efficiency, um, using the least amount of energy to do the same job as anybody else. Yeah. It, it's, um, it's probably too soon for you to have done it, but uh, eventually, uh, what the NTSB or somebody in the government is going to give you, uh, and, MPG equivalent or an EMPG rating on your car. It seems to me, if, if I'm doing my math right, it's going to be in the range of two or 300 miles per gallon equivalent. Is that what you're thinking? Yes, uh, I believe. I mean, that's a shocking number. I mean, you know, the best Tesla is barely over a hundred, right? So it's, it's two X plus what a, what a, a Tesla would be, right? Yeah, I don't know the uh, right now the the MPG equivalent or MPGE, which I guess is equivalent, uh, is because uh, we focus on watt hours per mile. Mm -hmm. But um, our target is 100 watt hours per mile, and and we've hit that before. And so we, it's not like that's a big stretch for us. It's it's about how do we do it at the cost and delivery and timeline and all that kind of thing. But for us to make this the magic work. Um, we have to hit 100 watt hours per mile, and it and it's been very difficult to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we are there, but uh, that's where all the engineering occurs: is to make a vehicle that's lightweight, that's strong enough, and can still you know hit those numbers. But uh, yeah, that's our number. It it, it, it is a, a great focus. You know, I think my bolt, and I I'm a bit of a not an extreme hypermiler, but a bit of a hypermiler. Always tracking my miles. And I'm in the range of uh, 240 oh. watt hours per mile. And so I think about that hundred and just think, you know, that's, that's nothing. 
it's just nothing. It's no juice. Uh, and so I ordered uh, my Aptera with the 600 mile range, the 60 kilowatt hour battery. Um, and I just, I can't imagine. I mean, it's a whole day drive without charging. Uh, I mean, it's just an, an amazing vehicle. Um, let's get a little bit granular. I know you're excited about the engineering. Tell us a little bit about some of the specifics that make the Aptera work. Uh, there's special surface. You got the solar panels. You got the three-wheeledness. Tell, tell us, a, get you know, brag a little bit about how this all comes together. Well, the first thing that people notice when they see an Aptera is the shape. You know, why does it look that way? Um, and it's really, it's it was an, it was an answer to a question that we asked quite a long time ago. Well, what is the what is the lowest drag shape that can surround two people uh, side by side? What is what is the mathematics of that shape? What, surely it must be expressible. And um, and so that's how we discovered uh, the the cambered body. So part of the magic that goes into it. Uh, to make it that efficient is the low aerodynamic drag. You know, we have the drag profile, the drag product, the CDA, of this, this about the same amount as the Ford F-150 side mirror, just as a comparison. Uh, you know, that's a big flat object sticking out in the wind, and it creates a lot of turbulence and drag, which is about the same amount as our total vehicle. So... It's wow. orders of magnitude less. Yeah, that's why. I mean, I still say wow when I look at some of this stuff. Uh, you know, orders of magnitude less. Um, the next is the weight. Um, weight. You know, once you once you take away first order losses and, and drop them down, now all the second order losses are almost as high, and so now you have to attend to those. And one of those are rolling resistance. So that. That is determined by tire selection. That's determined by the kind of bearings and the kind of seals on the motor um, and the weight. Weight is a big factor of rolling losses. So attending to the weight means that we have to use non-traditional materials, composites, some expensive things like that that we're making more cost-effective. So aerodynamics and lightweight are the biggest part of that. The the plus 30, 40 miles per day that comes from the solar um, is icing on the cake. That's something that we think really makes people's head explode because you're, you know, you, most people don't drive 40 miles a day. They drive 15, 20, you know, 25, 30. And even like myself, I've got a bolt like you and it's out front being charged right now. Um, I don't need to charge it to get home, but I like, you know, having half to three quarters of a charge most of the time. Uh, but, you know, you feel a little bit almost how maybe an addict would feel, you know, running around looking for the next hit, you know, yeah. making sure you have enough. Uh, and the Bolt is a good vehicle. You know, you're not stranded going to the airport or something like that, but you're always, you know, you have it in the back of your mind. And, and so how do we take that off the table for people so they don't even have to worry about it? And that was the idea of never charge, of just the vehicle charging itself while parked in the sun. So I think those three things, the low drag, the lightweight, and the integrated solar, solar that's integrated with the structural panels, it's replaceable, uh, but it's added on top of them, so it's part of it. Um, long service life for those things, very efficient. And those are the three parts of the equation to, uh, to make it, to give it that magic. 
Oh, it, it, it is magic. And I, I just can't wait. The, it seems to me from what I've read and seen that, uh, the spacey design is strictly a result of this demand for, uh, aerodynamics for efficiency. Right. Uh, and, uh, but it looks kind of like uh, something, right? That George Jetson would would drive if he were forced to drive a car, right? Uh, you're old enough, I think, to get that reference, perhaps. But right. uh, tell us a little bit about the design, the appearance of the car. Well, the, the pure mathematical shape. Um, if, if you see some of the images from uh, 2006 or so of, of the very first one, the Mark One, uh, it. It's a, it was a very pure shape. It's kind of this um, series of infinitely thin ellipses, you know, and, and that makes a cambered body and gives the occupants the space. And it was very easy mathematically to, uh, to determine and, and integrate, and differentiate. But that's not a shape that gives you a lot of headroom. And it's also not a shape that is fun to be in. And so we had to work with a real car designer. Uh, and that's this when we met Jason Hill some time ago. And so we we gave him, we kind of gave him carte blanche and said, look, do whatever you want to the shape. Just don't increase the drag. If you make it more usable, if you make it look more appealing, but the drag doesn't go up, then go for it. And so every everything that he's done, everything that our engineers do that change the surface, anything that interacts with the air, you know, has to go through that lens or that filter of does it increase the drag or not? And if it does, you know, they have to come and talk to me and Chris and, and we have to, you know, justify their existence or why doing that. Um, but they don't really do that because people know that we're not in the business of adding drag to the vehicle. We're, we're trying to take it away. But so the shape is, is mathematics, but it's also design. It's, it's where Jason came in. And taking that shape and doing what designers do, I'm, I'm not a designer. I can't uh, I recognize and can appreciate good good design, but um, they do something special. They think about shapes and lines and curves in different ways in regular humans, and they're able to transform everyday objects into something that's, that's beautiful. And, and it is a, a truly a, a beautiful car. I'm excited to see the the beta models when they're when they're done, I understand they'll be a little different. Uh, just a tweak here and there from the alpha models you've built. A nip and a tuck, um, more headroom, uh, better visibility from the inside. Trying to get the occupants a little closer together. You know, push the B pillar or the or the cant rail a little bit away from the head. So I think it's going to give you a, a greater feeling of space inside, and uh, and better visibility. You know, in the A pillar area. Yeah. All, all of will be perceived as improvements, and they will be improvements. Oh, that's great. That's great. Now, you've been at this for a while, and it hasn't been uh, lower left, upper right, in a straight line. Uh, there have been some challenges along the way, including at one point uh, bankruptcy. Tell us a little bit about the challenges, how we get here, and, and, and why you're confident in the future. Well... Chris and I started the company originally back in 2006. And uh, within a, a year or so, we had raised uh, a bit of money, I think about $40 million or so. We hired um, 
a professional team of managers, automotive personnel, uh, CEO, and other C-level executives to give us the experience and gravitas necessary to uh, get the Department of Energy loan. And uh, about a year into that plan, uh, we just had a, uh, a very uh, strong sense of misalignment, uh, myself and Chris, with the uh, professional team. And uh, that misalignment resulted in our departure from the company. And so uh, I went off into farming and uh, developed a vertical farming company. Later, that took me to the Middle East, uh, where I lived with my family for a couple of years. And uh, Chris started a battery company, Flux Power, and took that company public on the NASDAQ, I think, last year. And uh, we got together when I moved back to the United States and said, you know, the Aptera with new batteries would go maybe up to a thousand miles if we could pack hundred kilowatts, you know, kilowatt hours in. And we just started thinking through and talking about it. And we came to the conclusion that, you know, 2006, seven, eight, when we were first doing it, that was, and that was a learning experience. That was a warm up. Uh, the market wasn't proven. There was no supply base. You couldn't even buy connectors didn't exist for, for plugs. Um, everything was bespoke and you needed lots more capital because of that. And, um, and so that's why Tesla was able to succeed then because they did raise a lot more money at the time and they made significant inroads into the design of those things became vertically integrated because they, they just, those things simply didn't exist. But, um, for us, it's easier because the market's there. People want electric vehicles. You're not forcing them down their throat. The market wants them. There's a supply base. Uh, the government wants them. It, you know, it's just a win-win all the way across. Um, you know, what, what happened in the past, uh, when we left the company in 2009, uh, like I said, Chris, he started a battery company. I, I got into, I became a farmer for quite a while, uh, vegetables and, and herbs and, and things like that. And I, developed supply chains in, in Hong Kong and Singapore and, and sold our produce there and just got into a completely new industry because it was new and different and fun. Uh, and after that time, uh, the professional team at, uh, uh, at Aptera at the time, they, they just ran the company out of money. They were unable to, to raise money and, and they had to liquidate everything and uh, give whatever was left back to the investors. But we were out of the, out of the picture for a couple of years at that point. So, uh, that's, that's a synopsis of, of what happened. Yeah. Uh, well, you're on to great things. And one of the little signs of the success, the energy, the change in the market dynamic, I think, is uh, is the recent episode you did with uh, Jay Leno on, a, uh, on his show. Um, that isn't how I was introduced to you, I, but uh, I was thrilled to see that. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what it signals about the market, uh, the market readiness that Jay Leno is sharing this with his millions of viewers and his audience. Well, that's interesting. I would say before I answer that, I would say before we got to that point, um, we had built a business plan, Chris and I, for the, for the new Aptera to 
build and sell three to 4,000 vehicles per year. And we said, let's just get into production. We can get our sea legs. We could go and get different financing later. Uh, we could decide if we want to IPO, this and that. Let's just get in production. And literally before we could even realize it, we had exceeded the 3,000 reservations, you know, like the first month or so. Um, and then it was 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000. Uh, the first couple of days, you know, we had an alert on our phone whenever we get a new pre-order. And, uh, and it was just, it was dinging all the time. And finally, we just you know, turned that feature off because it was, it was paradoxically, you know, uh, intriguing and amazing, but also annoying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, alerted every time. But it, we were unprepared for the growth and or unprepared for the acceptance. And um, what it told us is that we tapped into something much bigger than us, much bigger than the company. There's, there's, there's something that's out there that we've tapped into that people want. And so we have had that validated by lots of means, means that we can discuss publicly like this and other means that we can't discuss publicly. And so for Jay Leno, uh, for that show to happen again and for us to be on there, it was, uh, it, it was um, a feeling of, humility and just a, a, a recognize a, to recognize how how precious it is to get a second chance you don't get second chances and the um, you know things have aligned uh, in our lives to give us a second chance and that just doesn't really happen and so we're we're just we're onto something very special and that was maybe a moment where I think I realized that for the first time. This is so much bigger than what we anticipated. Uh, things have aligned in a way that we could not have ever imagined to put us here. And so it's our duty to do our very best to make this happen. And that's what everybody here is doing. Yeah, well, it is uh, an exciting, exciting time to be in this in this space. Uh, and as one of your reservation holders, I think I, I, I'm, I think my next question is the question we all have. And that is when will you start making the cars and how do you get there? There, there's so much to do between building, you know, 10 or 12 beta cars, which is the step you're on now and building 10,000, 20,000 cars a year. What, how do you get there? It's a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, there are things in the schedule that we have very crisp control over. And there's things in the schedule that uh, visibility, you know, we're, we're working to make sure we have 100% visibility, supply chain issues, things like this. Um, and, and so that's really a way to look at it. What is in your control? What is not in your control? And so the elements that are within our control we're doing everything that we can to bring them to bear so that we can begin producing cars next year, vehicles next year, not cars. Uh, um, you know, there's some of the long lead things, uh, you know, calibration of the airbags, for example, that's, you know, that's a, uh, that's a long process. It has to start, you know, January, February next year to make that viable. Uh, and then lots of things have to happen so that that can happen. 
uh, that's just one example, but it's, it really comes down to, you know, Gantt charts, timing diagrams, uh, making sure things are accounted for and things are assigned to people. Sometimes we can't hire the people fast enough and we have to work with industry partners who can come in and take chunks of the vehicle and help us with the development. For example, we work with Roush, uh, who has uh, modeled our suspension, our new suspension for beta. They've uh, redesigned it, I should say, not model it, redesigned it, um, making it, I would say, handle as any modern road car would handle uh, with rebound and jounce and being able to pass the moose test and all of these kinds of things and validating that in software and simulation before we even drive the first beta. Very cool. But that's part of the kinds of things that we had to do to help us get to the schedule, uh, get to where we need to be on the timeline is to, you know, recognize what we need. And if we can't get it, then we go and work with a partner like Roush. We let them do that development with us and they put you know, 10 people on the program, and that helps the suspension segment go through. Same with the doors and other things like that. So, um, yeah, long lead things, uh, getting a handle on those, starting some of those things for production as early as January, February next year, uh, just so we can hit our timeline. Yeah. Lots of moving parts. When do you hope to deliver the first Aptera to a customer? Next year, <laughs> I can't I can't be pinned down on a month right now. Um, we were just talking about that in the in the conference room back there. So we have some uh, some dates I think that we're going to start circulating maybe, uh, and uh, but we have to have buy off internally that, uh, uh, that that's acceptable that that's possible. Yeah. But I definitely next year for sure next year when I can't I'm not going to. Uh, pin the company down publicly without, uh, without having the buy-in from the team yet. Yeah. Well, this is quite a thing. And, you know, it's, I think, a profound insight that you appreciate that these second chances are rare and special. Uh, it's hard for me to think of many where I've seen uh, people go through what you did and be able to come back and try again at the same thing. It's just, it really is a rare, 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 rare thing. Um. What do you think of as your superpower? Oh, my superpower. They told me you were going to ask this. I, um, I think it's, uh, my, my wife would say it's my ability to close my eyes and sleep anywhere. Uh, but I, I learned that from the Army. Um, but I would say something else I also learned from the Army is um, the ability to deprive myself of any comfort uh, or sleep or food or whatever is needed for as long as needed. And uh, without any, without experiencing discomfort. So I, um, if I need to work over the weekend and hardly sleep or eat or do something like that, um, or travel somewhere and, uh, and not eat and not worry about it, um, just, it's not something that causes me any concern. If it's, if it's heat, if it's working with my construction crew in uh, 120 degrees Fahrenheit desert um, because they don't have air conditioning either. And so we're all working there and um, whatever deprivation uh, I need to 
have, it's, it's just not an issue for me. Well, that's, that's really interesting. As you look at Aptera, how many times have you had to engage? Is that something you've done pretty regularly is, is to deploy that superpower of sacrifice to, to do that? Or is that just something from the farming days? No, um, I did a lot earlier. Um, I do have two small children. So I have a, uh, well, not small, 15-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old boy. And I do try and arrange my schedule so that I see as much of them as I can. But um, certainly uh, early on in the formation of the company and in the previous company, um, I use that a lot. Uh, but today even, uh, it it's what I how I am able to work in the evening or the weekends or or things like that. Or, um, when I, when I need to get more done than I would just being in the office, uh, or if I have to travel and work and do something like that. So I, I don't let any discomfort, you know, just be a factor in my performance, I should say. I guess that's the way of describing it. Fantastic. Obviously, you alluded to your training in the military, and, and some of that training, I think, is specific to that sort of skill, right? Uh, I, I wonder if you were teaching an entrepreneur or, uh, or someone uh, who wanted to have the kind of impact you're having to, to, to learn that self-discipline, that self-deprivation as a skill that could be leveraged for good, what would you teach them? How would you teach them to do that? Mm. I would uh, first have to resist the um, the urge to. Oh, it's moving. <laughs> yeah, it, it works. Where are you going? Where are they taking my car? Uh, I would have to resist the urge to lecture them about Stoic philosophy, uh, and so I'd say that's probably where I learned a lot of it too—not just the deprivations that you have in the military, but. Um, um, the, the deprivation, even practices that come from stoicism, little exercises and self-denial. Um, it's a, it's a constant thing. And in a heat, in a modern hedonistic society, it's hard to, it's hard to do that. You know, you become adapted. Uh, when, when I, when I worked in the, when I worked in the Middle East, I worked for the, uh, the Royal family. They would fly me around to review different, uh, ag tech deals all over all over the, all over the world, essentially. And it was always in, in business and first class. Um, and that's when I really, I discovered hedonic adaption. Uh, so you, you become accustomed to that as your baseline level. And for some reason, you know, you, uh, the first time like you have to fly coach, uh, or, or an economy after that. And, and you, you find yourself complaining like this or that. And, it was really the, the first time I, I caught myself doing that. And, and it was, it was, it was, uh, it was a touch point to say, wait a minute, w- watch for that behavior because you become accustomed to these, uh, these luxuries and these things. And they are, they're not essential and they're not normal even. And uh, I think it's important to think about those things like that as you know, most of the world doesn't have hot and cold running water, I mean, evolved economies do, but evolved economies are not most of the world. Yeah. Uh, so having having a dry place to go, uh, a warm place to go, hot and cold running water, um, enough food, 
so that you could eat and become unhealthy. Like these are all uh, the sort of positive feedback of, of hedonism that I think require periodic self-deprivation to keep yourself from uh, just wanting more. Well, that's a, a powerful insight. I, I really appreciate that, Steve. Well, Steve, I know you're busy uh, and want to respect your time. I, I can't thank you enough for doing this today. My pleasure. Before you go, would you take just a minute and tell people how they can learn more about Aptera, how they can order one, how they can follow you on social media, perhaps, and learn more. I mean, just whatever you want to encourage people to do, take a minute and encourage them. Easiest way is to go to aptera.us. Uh, from there, you can see our Instagram links, Twitter links, everything else. Um, you're not going to see me dancing on TikTok yet, but uh, I, I'm sure it's being discussed. And <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. Uh, but aptera.us is a way to reserve a vehicle, uh, uh, to invest. Uh, we have a current round of funding that's open right now. And uh, it's also a way to connect on social media and subscribe to those things. And you'll see the updates as they occur, uh, which is great because Sarah and the marketing team are putting out really good contact and co or really good materials, excuse me. And um, that's uh, something that we didn't have before that is also part of the equation that's really driving the interest is just the quality of the work that uh, the marketing team is doing. Oh, fantastic. Well, again, Steve, congratulations on Thank the progress so far. We wish you every success, and I have a selfish interest, so I'm hoping those cars start rolling out of the factory soon, but uh, good so. luck to you, okay? Yeah. All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.